are in a series, week two of a series called Questioning God. And in this series, what we are seeking to do is answer questions that people are asking. So last week, we answered the question, isn't religion going away? By the way, my name's Chris, if you haven't met me before. Uh, This week, we are answering question number two. And question number two is, isn't religion based on faith and secularism based on evidence? Uh, And the reason I showed that clip is because I think that clip does a decent job, or at least an okay job, of, of giving us a bit of a broad stroke summary of the kind of conversation that people have, or at least think when they have conversations about spirituality, spirituality, religion, metaphysics, supernatural beliefs, all that stuff. Because on one side of the table there, you had uh, Bill Maher. If you know Bill Maher, he would define himself as an ironclad atheist. He does not believe in any kind of supernatural reality. He actually made a a mockumentary, I guess, called Religious, which was like, uh, you know, speaking out against religion. So he's not just it's not just that he doesn't believe in a, a God or a supernatural being. It's that he actually thinks beliefs in these things are harmful and dangerous and the world would be a better place without them. And then on the other side of the table, you have uh, Marianne Williams, Williamson. Interesting lady. I don't know if you've ever uh, had listened to anything she has to say, but she kind of has this, uh, you know, kind of quasi new age spirituality kind of thing going on where she just kind of grabs, it's a bit of a potpourri, right? She grabs a little bit from here, a little bit from there, a little bit from here. It's like a spiritual buffet and she throws it all together and basically has like what I call a word salad where it's like, what is she even talking about? Like, what is, what does she mean? I don't, what is dictation from Jesus? What does it mean to believe in each other? And that's what God, like, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense if you actually start to sit there and, 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 and slow it down and take her, uh, her, her opinions claim by claim. You're like, that, that doesn't mean anything. It's basically nonsensical. But yet I think when it comes to this conversation, that's, that's sort of how the conversation goes. We either have these positions where we've rejected any kind of supernatural belief completely out of hand, or we have, and we talked a little bit about this last week, this sort of uh, quasi-New Age, potpourri, buffet-style spirituality where you just kind of believe whatever you want. And, and the way that the conversation is framed is this, is if you don't believe in God, then your worldview is built on uh, evidence, not faith. But if you have any kind of spiritual belief or any kind of supernatural belief whatsoever, then your worldview is actually predicated on or it's built on faith. And, and, and is that actually true? That's the question we want to ask and answer this morning. Okay, so if you have a Bible, we're actually going to go to the Bible to start. Because here's, I'll just let you know where I'm going to go. I'm going to lay out for us in broad strokes uh, the Christian worldview, uh, what the Bible teaches about reality as we know it, like the, the kind of storyline, the meta narrative of Scripture, and how reality is defined as a result of that. And then what I'm going to do is come back and unpack the question, is it reasonable to say that secularism is based solely on evidence and supernatural claims are based solely on faith? So if you have a Bible, uh, open it up to John chapter one. If you have a Bible app on your phone, you can go there. There were Bibles on that table, but they're gone. That's so weird. Maybe we ran out, in which case we will buy some more, but the verses will be on the screen, so fear not, okay? John chapter 1, and, and what we have in John's gospel here, just so everyone's clear, is a man by the name of John who was a disciple of Jesus, meaning he walked with Jesus, he talked with Jesus, he was taught by Jesus, he was trained by Jesus. So the, the claim of the Bible is that this is an eyewitness Uh, This is a person who has an eyewitness experience or firsthand experience with Jesus. And he's going to give for us here a a little bit of a a picture of who Jesus is. But it's not 
just a physical picture. It's not just the data about his life. Like this is where he was born and this is, uh, you know, some of the things he did. It, it's, it's where John is actually going to kind of pull back the veil and give us uh, a picture of who Jesus is kind of behind the scenes, like sort of a meta, uh, metaphysical or supernatural claim about Jesus. And we'll come back to this at the end, and, and this will fit in with what I'm talking about, so bear with me. So here's what Jesus, uh, John rather writes in John chapter 1, starting in verse 1, talking about Jesus. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 2, He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, being the Word, being Jesus, all things were made, and without Him, nothing was made that has been made. So John is making a fairly radical claim here about who Jesus is. He uses this word that is word. That's the word he uses to describe Jesus. And he says some things here. In the first part of the first verse, he says in the beginning. He borrows a phrase from Genesis chapter 1, which is the beginning of God's story. And if you know the beginning of God's story, Genesis chapter 1, 1, we have the beginning of the cosmos where it says, in the beginning God created. And so what John is doing here is he's borrowing language from Genesis chapter 1. He's applying it to Jesus. So just to to help us connect all the dots and understand what John is saying here, he's saying this Jesus fellow was there at the beginning of creation. That's actually what these verses go on to say. But it doesn't just say that he was there uh, at the beginning of creation, but it actually makes a fairly significant claim about Jesus. John makes a fairly significant claim about Jesus. Notice what he says here. It says that he is God. So the picture that is painted for us of Jesus is, yes, he was a physical man. We, we talked a little bit about that last week. But there was something bigger to him than the fact that he was just a physical man. He was actually God, and he's actually responsible for the creation of the cosmos. He's the one who, who makes everything happen. He was there at the beginning. He's the first, uh, he's the, the uncaused cause of the universe, the first mover, if you will. And then notice what it says in verse uh, verse. Three, verse 4, sorry. In him, being Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness does not overcome it. So again here, John is borrowing language from the beginning of God's story, and he's applying it to Jesus. The beginning of God's story, we see this reality whereby God creates the universe, he creates the cosmos, he creates planet Earth, he creates nature and the way that we experience it, and he also creates mankind. And it says in uh, the book of Genesis that God actually breathed his very breath into the nostrils of mankind. And the Christian would say that this is what distinguishes the human being from the rest of the created order. This is what makes us unique and special. It's not just that our frontal lobes are more developed and we have opposable thumbs, right? So we can text. That's not what separates us from all of creation, from the whole created order. It's actually that we've been made in the image and likeness of God that he breathed his very breath in us. The language that John uses here is that the the light of God, it has been imprinted on us. That there's something unique about the human race as we know it because we are set apart and it is that we were made in the image and likeness of God and his, his very likeness rests upon us. That's why humanity has value. That's why we have worth. That's why we long for justice when we see injustice because We've been made in the image and likeness of God. But don't miss what he says here in verse 5. He says, the light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So again, going back to the the beginning of God's story, there's this reality whereby God was, he creates the cosmos, he creates humanity, he breathes his very breath 
into the nostrils of humanity. Humanity's walking with God. They're in perfect harmony, perfect relationship. And then humanity makes it makes a decision whereby they, they decide to walk away from God, reject God, re- rebel against God. And so they take the light that was imprinted on them and they bring darkness into the equation. The, the language that the Bible uses, which isn't language that's necessarily familiar to us today, is the language of sin or rebellion or disobedience. And so what, what John is saying here is that Jesus made us, he knows us, he loves us, he breathed his very breath in us. Here he uses this analogy of light, he puts his light on us, but, but we reject his light. We walk away from him. We say, no, thank you. We decide we want to go our own way. And so while we still bear his image and likeness, in a sense, that's become marred or it's broken. It's not, it's not as full as it should be. And then if you skip down to verse 14, we get this beautiful picture here. Verse 14, John goes on to say of Jesus, he said, then the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who, who uh, wrote what we know as the message translation of the Bible, he translate the, translates this verse to say that, that God moved into the neighborhood, that Jesus moved into the neighborhood, and we have seen his glory, Jesus' glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. And, and so what John is doing here is he's telling us that God made us in his image and likeness. He breathed his breath in us. He put his light on us. We rebel against him. Darkness comes over us, but then Jesus doesn't leave us there. God doesn't just look at us and say, well, forget you. It says that, that he actually pursues us. He, he moves into our neighborhood. He comes after us. He, he comes, and why does he come? He comes to rescue and redeem us. And, and, and for those of you who are familiar with the story arc of uh, the narrative of scripture, this won't be new to you, but I know that many of you are not familiar with this, so just Bear with me, those of you who, who are familiar with this. The reason that Jesus came was to, to take the darkness away and replace it with light. Uh, the reason that Jesus came was to, to fix everything that was broken. As uh, the, the author uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones says in the Jesus Storybook Bible, his desire is to make, and this is beautiful, and I think this resonates with our heart, it's to make everything sad come untrue, to fix it. And so how does he do that? Well, this is where the cross of Jesus comes in. Jesus comes and he lives a perfect life, demonstrating for us the life that we should have lived. And then he is condemned as a guilty criminal, despite the fact that he was innocent and he goes to the cross and he dies on the cross. Think about this with me for a second. Using the analogy that John's using here in John chapter one of light and darkness, him who is perfectly light goes to the cross and becomes what? Darkness. It's one of the darkest moments in all of human history. In fact, it says, if you fast forward to the gospel account of the life of Jesus, that it actually became dark in the middle of the day. Because Jesus became dark. Why? So that we could become light. It's beautiful. Because after the cross, Jesus is buried in the tomb. We just sang about this. He rose again from the grave. And by his resurrection, it was as if God was saying, death does not have the final word. Brokenness does not have the final word. Again, to go back to the analogy, darkness does not have the final word. And he imprints back on us light. It's a beautiful story. Beautiful. 
beautiful story, beautiful story of redemption, a beautiful story of a God who looked down at his wayward children and said, I'm not going to leave you. I'm going to pursue you. I'm going to come after you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to bring you back home and make you right. Even though you might not want me, even though you might not be looking for me, I'm looking for you. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. The question, though, is, is it true? I mean, there's a sense in which I love what Tim Keller says about, uh, about the gospel story of Jesus. He's like, he says, even if it isn't true, don't you just want it to be true? But is it true? Somebody like Bill Maher would look at this story, the story of Jesus, or, or any story, really, that makes any kind of metaphysical or supernatural claims, and, and they would reject, uh, he would reject it out of hand, saying that it's, Nothing more than a fairy tale. It's nothing more than wishful thinking. And, and the question is, why? why? Why would he do that? Why, does, why, do, why do some people look at the world and say that there's no way that anything metaphysical or anything that, that falls outside of the bounds of what we can know be true? And that's what I want to do this morning. Is I, w- I want to unthread that a little bit. So this is going to be a little bit more like a lecture than it is going to be like a sermon, but we'll get back to some preaching at the end. That was preaching. Now we're going to go into some lecture. Then we're going to go, we're going to go back to preaching here in just a moment. But, but somebody who holds to a purely naturalistic worldview or purely secular worldview or a worldview whereby they say there, there, there is nothing that can account for or qualify or quantify the supernatural or any kind of metaphysical claims, you need to know this. They, they have a faith position. And that faith position is called exclusive rationality. And this is how it's defined. It's the belief that science is the only arbiter of what is real and factual, and that we should not believe anything unless we can prove it decisively using our five senses. In other words, we will not believe anything unless we can, we can demonstrate it in a laboratory, unless we can conduct a, an experiment on it, and it will provide us with data that then verifies that it's true. And really what this comes down to, or at least what the perception is, is that this comes down to a rejection of religious or supernatural claims on the basis of rationality. We are rational people with rational minds. We're smart. You're smart. I'm smart. Everybody's smart. And we know that snakes don't talk and dead people don't come back to life So we are going to reject this out of hand and we're going to hold on to a worldview or a position that is based solely on rational thinking. That's very important. The secular worldview, the naturalistic worldview, the worldview that rejects any kind of supernatural claims out of hand claims that they have exclusive rationality, that there's no faith involved in this worldview or position. In fact, a lot of times uh, they will describe faith as the ultimate F word because they don't want to believe anything on faith they want to believe solely on fact. If you've been following, you know, if you're involved in the Christian subculture at all and, and you're on social media, then you've probably noticed as of late that there's been a number of people that would be defined as Christian celebrities, which is just a weird thing. And I don't even know. Uh, I mean, that's a whole other sermon for another day. But, but we have this weird thing where we have a celebrity culture. And there's been a number of Christian celebrities, Josh Harris, uh, Marty Sampson, where, where these people have like, you know, they're popular. They've been very influential in the Christian church globally. And they've recently deconstructed their faith and and deconverted. And there's kind of this consistent theme whereby these people would say that they've 
They've really wrestled with their belief system. They've really wrestled with, you know, these sort of beliefs that have been held for long periods of time. They started to look at them and question whether they're, you know, maybe they're archaic, they're, uh, they're outdated. And what they would say is that they've, they've looked at the evidence and rationality and empirical evidence has led them to believe that God is not real. That the Christian faith as it stands is not one that should be believed and should not be followed. And the perception is, the way that it feels, although none of them say it exclusively, is now that I've been enlightened, I reject these juvenile and childish beliefs. I step out of the world of faith and I move into the world of rationality. I step out of the world of fairy tale and I step into the world of belief based on empirical evidence. Is that the case? There's a quote by a man named uh, Talel Assad. He's a cultural anthropologist. He's not a Christian, although I do believe uh, that he holds on to supernatural beliefs. Here's what he says. He says, people who deconvert from a religious belief are actually shedding one set of beliefs for another, one set of moral narratives for another, with its insiders, outsiders, heroes, heretics, and unproven assumptions about reality. What Assad is saying here is that it's too simple to paint religious people, to paint people who hold views on the supernatural as those who are irrational and have built their life on faith, and those who hold on to uh, naturalistic worldviews or secular worldviews as those who have built their uh, worldview on rationality. That's, that's far too simplistic. Uh, what he's saying is if you start to dig beneath the surface, if you start to, start to pull at some of the threads of everyone's worldview, here's what you're going to see. They're predicated on some level on a presupposition or an assumption or on something that is unprovable, something that, that you can't demonstrate beyond a shadow of a doubt. So, so here's what I want you to take away this morning. The question isn't, do you have faith? The question is, in what do you have faith? So it's not whether you believe in Jesus or something else, some other religious worldview. It's not whether you're, you know, the classic West Coast SBNR spiritual but not religious and kind of worship Mother Earth or meditation and yoga or whatever it is, or you, uh, you know, you hold on to a uh, completely perceived to be completely uh, rationally built worldview. Those are all faith positions. Those are all positions that are built on presuppositions. And so the question that we have to ask then is in what do we have faith? And the way that I framed this last week, and I think that will be, uh, it will be helpful for us this morning again, is what worldview actually makes the most sense out of the lived human experience as I see it? And then if you go even further than that, the question that we need to wrestle with is what is true? What is true? So, so I want to spend just a couple of seconds, because some of you are probably asking the question, how is secularism, how is science, how is, and maybe you're not, in which case the next few minutes is going to be really boring for you, but how, how are these things predicated or built on faith? Well, there's some really deeply problematic presuppositions that are built into the secular narrative and the, and the naturalistic worldview. And I want to, there's a lot that I could unthread here, but I, I'm just going to pull at two, two threads, okay? This is like, I hope you had your Wheaties this morning kind of stuff, Okay. 
because it's not the most exciting, but it is interesting, at least to me. Here's, here's the first problem with the naturalistic secular worldview, purely naturalistic secular worldview. You have to have faith that only the material world exists. Now, remember the position, right? Remember the Bill Maher position, the, the secular position. It says that God cannot exist, therefore religion is not true because it cannot be demonstrated empirically. It cannot be demonstrated scientifically. It cannot be tested. There's no way to know. You can't take this God question, bring it into a laboratory, perform a test on it, an autopsy, whatever the case is, and then know beyond a shadow of a doubt whether it's true or not. Therefore, we reject it out of hand. Here's the problem with that statement and that sediment in those thoughts. It presupposes that the only way to measure and understand and ascertain truth is physically, empirically. Uh, Philosopher uh, C. Stephen Evans says this, science by its very nature is not fit to investigate whether there is more to reality than the natural world. Listen to what he says here. Because science's baseline methodology is to always assume a natural cause for every phenomenon. There is no experiment that could prove or disprove that there is something beyond this material world. For example, there would be no way to empirically prove that a miracle has occurred since a scientist would have to assume, no matter what, that no natural cause can be discovered. If there actually has if there actually uh, had truly been a supernatural miracle, modern science could not possibly discern it. So in other words, to hold the position that you can only know truth on the basis of empirical evidence, you have to presuppose, okay, hang with me here, you have to presuppose that you can only know truth based on empirical evidence. Does anyone see a problem with this? Let's play a game of cards, and I get to make up the rules on the fly, and I win every time, wouldn't you be like, that's cheating? Like, I'm playing, right? I'm playing with Lance, and he puts down a five, and I put down a seven, and I say, oh, a seven's higher than a five. I win. And then he puts down a seven, and then I put down a five, and I'm like, oh, five beats seven. He's like, oh, I don't understand. Well, I just get to make up the rules. I get to stack the deck. Lance is not going to be a happy man, especially if we're playing for money. You see a problem with this? It's, it's called circular reasoning. It's actually a logical fallacy. Like in the philosophical world, I'm not going to get too technical here, but this would be called a logical fallacy. It's begging the question. You stack the deck so that you win every single time. But it actually gets a little bit worse than that. It actually gets a little bit more significant than that because it's not just a logical fallacy. You, you, there's, there's no way to actually test the soundness of the statement, you can only know truth based on empirical evidence. Like You can't test that statement empirically. So what does that make the statement then? It's a philosophical claim. It's actually not an empirical statement. It's a philosophical statement. Stephen Evans goes on to say this, that both the statement, there is no supernatural reality beyond this world, and the statement that there is no transcendent reality beyond this world are philosophical, not scientific propositions. Neither can be empirically proved in such a way that no rational person, uh, that no rational person could doubt. To state that there is no God or that there is a God then necessarily entails, hang with me here, hang with me, there's the F word, faith. 
And so the declaration that science is the only arbiter of truth is not itself a scientific finding, it's a belief. Mic drop. You have to have faith to believe that that's the only way to ascertain truth. So again, the question isn't, do you have faith or not? The question is, in what do you have faith? In what have you put your trust? In, in what do you believe? So that's the first problem. Here's the second problem, and this one's even more nerdy than the first one. I'll try and make it interesting. The second problem is this. You have to have faith that your cognitive faculties, your ability to actually understand things, are sound. So what, what does this mean? So in order to hold a position that the only arbiter of truth is empirical evidence, you have to actually be able to trust your brain's ability to perceive. That's a problem. In fact, to believe anything, to hold any position on anything ever necessitates that you trust your brains, your, your cognitive faculties, your brain's ability to perceive and ascertain truth and know things. Like you, you have to trust in that. Like there's no way, like just to get really lame here, but there's no way to demonstrate that this world wasn't created like one second ago with all of our memories and everything intact right now. Like there's no way to prove that. There's no way to prove we're not in the matrix. It cannot be done. It's possible that we're, you know, artificial intelligence, we're bots in a game, and some four-year-old is like playing on a controller with us, and a whole bunch of kids around the world are watching him play on YouTube. That could be happening right now to you and me, and we wouldn't know. And there's no way to demonstrate that it's not the case. Charles Darwin, the godfather of uh, evolution as we know it, he he actually wondered about this. This is known, classically known as Darwin's doubt. He said this, within me, a horrid doubt always arises, whether the convictions of a man's mind, which has been developed from the mind of lower animals, are of any value at all or trustworthy. Now, again, this is predicated on a godless universe. That's what Darwin was presupposing. Would anyone trust the convictions of a monkey's mind if there are any convictions in such an animal? So, so what Darwin is saying is if we are just slightly more evolved animals, then, uh, you know, would you trust the cognitive faculties of a monkey? Probably not. Why would you trust the cognitive faculties of us if we're just slightly more evolved? You see, to hold the position that empirical evidence is the only way to ascertain truth, you have to have faith that the reason and the proof you are seeing and experiencing can actually be trusted. And the way that your mind processes the evidence that you see can actually be trusted because if that can't be trusted, then who knows what you're actually seeing? Who knows what you're actually processing? To take this one step even further, uh, there's, I don't know if anyone likes to listen to podcasts, but I listen to a lot of podcasts. There's a great podcast that I would highly recommend. It's called Unbelievable. It's hosted by a man named Justin Brierley out of uh, the UK. And what he loves to do is pick a semi-controversial topic and then have people who have juxtaposing views on the topic get together and they have win, winsome, like healthy, good conversation. It's not like gotcha debates. It's not that kind of stuff. It's just two guys or gals or guy and a gal or whatever having a conversation about a particular topic. And this week, uh, they had a, a man by the name of Brett Weinstein, who's a, he, I would describe him as a sympathetic atheist. He does not believe in the supernatural, but he's not a jerk. And they had a guy named Alistair McGrath, who's a well-known Christian philosopher and theologian. They were having a very interesting conversation about the origin of religion and its usefulness. And what Weinstein said was that the reason that we have religion as we know it is because 
our belief faculties, our, our, our belief-making faculties in our brain created this idea of religion. And the reason that our bodies, our minds, are we're basically biological machines. The reason that we do anything is because we want to propagate our genes from one generation to the next. That's the way that a godless evolutionary system works. And so religion is not true, but it's helpful. This is what Weinstein's theory was. And so you can't actually trust it because it was produced by your belief, uh, your, your belief-making faculties in your brain. It was a helpful thing that we needed to survive, but we probably don't need it anymore, and we could probably get rid of it. But here's the problem. As I listen to Weinstein talk, the same scalpel that he used to critique the supernatural, the belief in a God, the necessity for a religious system or belief, the same line of reasoning and thought, he didn't apply to himself. So he would say, you would say to him, I believe in a God, and he would just say, you're pre-programmed to believe that. You would say, I believe in a morality, in a particular type of morality, and he would say, you were pre-programmed to believe that. And the only reason you've been pre-programmed to believe any of these things is simply so that your genes can propagate from one generation to the next. But then when he says, I believe there's no God, he doesn't apply the same, same line of reasoning to himself. Could it be, could it be that people have started to posit this as a potential worldview, and the only reason that this has actually started to come about is because it's not true, but it's useful. We don't know. Maybe we've just been, maybe Weinstein was just pre-programmed to not believe in God. In other words, believing something or, or even thinking you know something doesn't necessarily make it true. And so the question is, if our cognitive faculties don't tell us what is true, they only tell us what we need to know to survive, why would we actually believe them? Why believe that when you actually observe the environment, that what you're seeing out there is actually true and is actually out there? Why believe that when you posit a universe with no God, that what you're positing is actually real? There's no reason for it. So if you have a worldview that says your cognitive faculties are the final arbiter of truth, on what basis can you actually trust your cognitive faculties? Again, this is called circular reasoning. You have to have faith. You have to believe that what you're seeing is real and true, that your ability to perceive It actually makes sense. It's actually right. So back to the question, it's not do you have faith, it's in what do you have faith? It's not are you all about faith or are you, are you all about rationality, it's do, in what do you choose to place the faith that you have in? I often talk about faith as a commodity. It's a thing that we all have and we all have to decide where we're going to place it. And so the question we all have to wrestle with at some point in our life is in what do I believe? What do I believe about the world? What do I believe about the universe? What do I believe about who I am? What do I believe about the feelings I have and the experiences I have in the world as I see it? What do I believe? We've got to wrestle with these big questions. And, and the sad thing about our life is more often than not, we're just so busy 
trying to pay the mortgage and, you know, keep our kids out of prison that we never actually get around to asking some of the bigger questions in life. But the reality that we have to deal with is this. The answer to those questions drastically change the way you see the universe. So, so what we're talking about right now is what's called a worldview. And a worldview functions like a set of glasses. You put these glasses on and then you see all of, all of your life through your worldview. And the sad thing is for many of us, we've never even thought about what we believe. We're just, we're just hustling, doing what we need to do, trying to be good people, trying to be decent citizens, but we've never asked some of the bigger questions. And what I'm asking you to do this morning is to just take a second and stop and ask yourself, what do I believe about the universe? What do I believe about my place in it? What do I believe about who I am? And I want to be clear here. My, my goal this morning is not to, um, you know, maliciously deconstruct a secular worldview. It's not what I'm trying to do. I don't want any of you to, you know, view some of these arguments as like bullets you can use in a gun to go out for coffee with your friends that don't know Jesus and, you know, play gotcha with them. Not, not helpful. Not helpful in the mission. Not helpful in convincing people uh, that there is a God who loves them and knows them. In fact, probably has the opposite effect from my experience. But what I'm trying to do is demonstrate to all of us here this morning that we do have faith, that, that we have what, what some would call absorbed beliefs, that we're, we're kind of like belief sponges. We're just walking around absorbing things, and those are starting to fill us up, and then they start to inform how, how we believe, how we think, and how we live. So our community, our family of origin, the culture that we belong to, the television that we watch, all of these things start to, start to tell us a story about the world that we live in. And, and what I'm asking us to do, in, in a sense, is deconstruct your worldview. Deconstruct what you believe and, and start to press in and start to, start to ask some questions. See, see, the problem with uh, deconstruction oftentimes is that we don't deconstruct far enough. We deconstruct on a, on a cursory level the God question, but we don't go further. We don't go further into some of this stuff and ask some of the harder questions. And so here's, here's the challenge for us today, especially those of us who are skeptics, maybe not believers in Jesus, believers in God. And this isn't just like the secular person who doesn't believe in any kind of supernatural, but even just the quasi West Coast average run-of-the-mill, you know, Victorian who has some, you know, spiritual or religious beliefs, but, but you know, you haven't really thought them through. Here, here's the challenge and the question. Doubt your doubts. You're, you're hearing about Jesus and you're starting to go, ah, I don't know about that. I don't know if I'd go that far with it. So I'm going to flip these tarot cards and let them determine the universe for me. I'm going to read the newspaper and let the Sagittarius person describe to me how the world... <laughs> really? I would question whether that's good wisdom. But I have crystals and essential oils. I don't know. Is essential oils, is that witchcraft? I'm not sure. I'm just kidding. I just offended like half the ladies in the room. Love essential oils. I'm all about the mint vinegar and Kelly rubs it on my feet every night. Helps clear my nasal passages. 
but doubt your doubts. Question your worldview. Ask, ask yourself, have I thought through this before? Or did I just make it up? Did I just inherit it? What do I really believe? What do I really believe? So one of the dangers of a conversation like this, if we're not careful, is that it leaves us in this place of hopeless despair. And actually, if you look back over human history, we see this a lot. Guys like Frederick Nietzsche, who started to ask a lot of questions, good questions, and they just kept asking questions, and they just kept asking questions, and they just kept asking questions. It leads oftentimes to, or can lead oftentimes, to a place where where you kind of fall in this pit of despair, this pit of hopelessness, where where you start to question all of reality, and you come, it almost becomes maddening, unnerving, if you will. And you get to this place where you actually start to wonder, like, can we know anything? C.S. Lewis has a quote that I think here is helpful. Here, here's what C.S. Lewis says in The Abolition of Man. He says, you cannot, go, uh, you cannot go on explaining away forever, or you will find that you have explained explanation away. For example, you cannot go on seeing through things forever. The whole point of seeing through something is to see something else through it. It is good that you can see through a window because the garden beyond is opaque. But if you could see through everything, then everything would be transparent and a wholly transparent world would be an invisible world. So to see through everything is to not see at all. What Lewis is saying here is that if if we start to get uh, to this place of of hopeless despair, cynical uh, skepticism, we, we come to this place where we actually explain away explanation. And so we, we, we have to be mindful of our, our deconstruction where we're actually deconstructing something and in pursuit of truth. And, and this is where I want to come back to the Christian worldview for a second and say, I think that the Christian worldview has something to say here that is unique in this conversation. I realize I'm biased, very, very biased. But hang with me here for a second. The Christian worldview is predicated on this idea that truth is something that is revealed to us. That it's not something we ascertain by pure cognitive reasoning or just by our feelings, but that truth has been revealed to us outside of the system. That something has come from outside of the system and entered into the system and revealed truth to us. That's what we see in John chapter 1, right? When we get this picture of Jesus moving into the neighborhood, we actually get this picture of the God of the universe revealing himself to us. He comes into the system and he says, let me show you what truth is. Let me demonstrate to you what truth is. And and even within this revelation of truth, I think there's, there's something interesting about Christianity and the way that it describes its truth that is, is even more helpful in this conversation. So when you look at a a secular, purely secular worldview, what what do you see? You see naturalism, where supernaturalism, any kind of belief in a God is rejected out of hand. When you look at any other religious worldview, any other spiritual worldview, generally speaking, if you're going to take any of the the main religions that people uh, believe, here's what you'll see, is that they embrace the supernatural and they reject the rational out of hand. But then you come to the Christian worldview, and there's something interesting that we see in John chapter 1. We see a God 
who is supernatural, metaphysical, to be sure, entering into the physical, the natural. So we see the blending of the, the natural and the supernatural coming together, manifesting itself, revealing itself to us. In fact, if you were to thumb your pages through the New Testament, you'd come to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he writes this long uh, treatise on the resurrection of Jesus, a supernatural event that occurred within human history. That's the claim. And the Apostle Paul actually makes this claim in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Jesus Christ was not raised, then Christianity is not true. In science, we call this a a falsibility test, a falsifiable test. You can actually falsify Christianity. That's one of the bedrock uh, predications for a scientific claim. If it cannot be falsified, it cannot be demonstrated. Christianity says you can falsify its claims. It embraces reality. It embraces naturalism. It embraces history. But it doesn't stop there. Because like we talked about last week, naturalism comes up too short. It doesn't make sense of the human experience. It doesn't make sense of love. It doesn't make sense of beauty. It doesn't make sense why why you want to reach over and squeeze your your loved one's hands or hold your kids at night or why we believe in objective morality. It makes no sense of these things because what it says is it's all just, it's all just chemical reactions that are occurring in your brain. But Christianity says, no, no, it's something more than that, that you have the breath of God breathed into you. The light of God has been poured out over you. And so Christianity comes in and it takes the best of the natural and the best of the supernatural and it brings them together. If you go back over history, you'll see that the Christian worldview has been very hospitable to science. And so let me ask you a question. Does the Jesus story, as it's been described to you today, does it make sense of your lived experience? Does it actually speak into your soul? It makes sense of the world as you see it. You have to have faith in something. have faith in something. My contention this morning is that Jesus Christ is worth putting your faith in. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I know in this room there are people that are all over the map. There are people who are new, this maybe first time here, never thought about it. There's people who are just coming because they heard about this series, they got invited by a friend, and they're wondering, is this real? Is this true? They're looking for something. 
Friends, if that's you, there's just this beautiful truth about Jesus that while it might on the outside look that look like you are in pursuit of him, he is wildly in pursuit of you. In other words, it's not an accident that you're here. This is what C.S. Lewis calls the hounds of heaven coming after you, wanting you to know how loved you are by God. Jesus, we just want to know you better. Even those of us who have been here for a long time and we've heard this stuff and we know where our faith is placed, it is squarely on your shoulders and in you and who you are. Would you in this moment just cement cement your reality on us? Lord, I'm, I'm just going to ask that you would boldly proclaim over our hearts that we are loved by you. Friends, in just a second, we're going we're gonna to sing and we're going to respond to what God's, uh, what he's done. And I said this last week and we'll say it again. We, we always respond by singing. We always respond by giving because Jesus has given so much. But one of the things we do in response is we respond through communion. And it's the way this works. If you're new, is we have two stations at the front of each aisle. You come forward and, and one... Uh, at the station will be a, a cracker, which represents the broken body of Jesus. And then you can dip it in the wine or the juice, whichever you prefer. And that represents the shed blood of Jesus. And, and the reason we do this every week is because there's this, there's this beautiful reality that at the center of the story of Jesus is the cross. It's where Jesus, the light, became dark. Jesus, the perfect light, became our darkness that we might become his lightness, his light. And, and what we see at the cross isn't, isn't just a tragic death, although it is indeed that. It's what John, this John, calls in, later in the New Testament, the full display of God's love, where he comes after us where he pursues us. And so as we respond this morning to Jesus, as we respond this morning to the reality of what he's done for us, here, here's what I want you to hear. Here's what I want all of us to hear. It's that Jesus loves you. It sounds so simple, but yet it's so profound. And so Jesus, as we sing and as we take communion and as we celebrate, remind us, Remind us of your love, we pray. In Jesus' name. And all God's children said, Amen. Why don't you stand and we'll respond.